Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. It was the proverbial point of no return. Already motoring down the airstrip at speeds faster than any automobile or passenger train could achieve. We were seconds away from doing what still seemed impossible right up until the final moment. Flight. I was filled with anticipation like the son of Icarus himself. Oh. 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 When great events in history occur, do witnesses realize the importance? Looking back on my time now, I realize I was one of the lucky ones, privileged to tell the stories of those times. I'm Orville Mulligan, sports writer. folks on the first ascent. We're leveling out now and then smooth flying all the way to Texas. Mm -hmm. Leaving the surface of the earth was quite the singular experience. My awareness of gravity had been purely of the textual variety before lifting off in that J-1, leaving my fate to the invisible whims of wind and a pilot whom I'd met ten minutes ago. Every school child has heard the story of Isaac Newton's apple. But being there at the focal point of a tug-of-war between Earth and the latest in mankind's ingenious engineering can quickly teach what gravity means. Odder still, once the plane leveled off, that same formerly irresistible gravitational force suddenly felt completely irrelevant. Not in the same sense that I couldn't feel my own weight, but wedged into the seat by dint of the width of my rig, the feeling was as though the entire vehicle, Mr. Lees and myself included, were bobbing within an invisible corridor of air whipping past at 90 miles per hour. One mile up in the air, traveling faster than an automobile with less vehicle around me. Mr. Lees? Yes, sir? How much more flight time is there? Uh, I'd say about nine hours and 55 minutes. We've only been up in the air for five minutes. I don't blame you, though. Time can play tricks on you up here. Five minutes gone. How did I get into this? I'm just saying. Or I think I'm saying. Or, no... No. There's something I want to say, so I'm just going to say it. All right. Maybe we, I mean, you and I, we shouldn't... Orville! Just the man I wanted to see. I got a belated Christmas present for you. Okay, not so much. A present as an assignment. But it's a great one. A peach of assignment to close out the year. Well, don't keep me in suspense, boss. You're going to California for the Rose Bowl. But... Isn't that great? 
The Rose Bowl, the biggest football game of the year. Penn State versus Washington. That's Notre Dame and Stanford, Father. Right, right. You're going to have a great time. It's still summer there. It's always summer there. But Mr. Delft, the Rose Bowl is on January 1st. I'd have very little hope of getting there in time. Pragmatically speaking, getting to Pasadena inside of four days was well possible, but hardly simple, involving up to a half dozen transfer connections near perfectly timed. Not to mention that it's four days in train cars. No hope at all, really. Surely it's just a matter of timetables. But don't worry about trains. Actually, just worry about one train, because this is the best part. You're flying there! Flying? Yes, sirree, like a bird. I've arranged for you to meet with Wilbur Leach. That's Walter Lees. Right, right. Catch a train over to Dayton this afternoon. What's the time on that, Marla? You've got two hours and seven minutes to catch the next, and best, line to Dayton. Great! Plenty of time. And then tomorrow, first thing in the morning, William. Walter. Walter. Whatever. We'll fly you to Houston. Dallas. And from there, you jump over to Albuquerque. El Paso. And the day after that, you'll go on to Los Angeles. I've got it all for you here, along with some clippings on Mr. Leeds. I've borrowed you this book as well. The Aeroplane in War, written in 1912. I looked for something a little more scientific, but this is all they had. Ah, I envy you, Orville. You're going to have the adventure of a lifetime. Just remember... Get material for the paper. I want a game write-up to be sure, but also get together enough to write a couple of feature links on the commercial possibilities of air travel. There's a big future in that. And something on the air meat circuit. Can aerial sports catch on? That sort of thing. You know what I'm saying. Got it? Great! Great! Marla! I'm going to go for a turn or two around the block. I still can't believe you bought yourself that thing. But I didn't! It was a gift from Santa Claus. I just hope Santa Claus is paying for it. Want to lift to the station, Orville? Well, I'd certainly enjoy taking a spin in the new flivver. You sure would enjoy it. She's a beaut. I'll bring her around in one hour. Across the country, on an airplane. Yes, quite the adventure. Who would have thought it possible 20, maybe even 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got to get to packing back at my place. You were saying something? What? Oh, yeah. Uh, Don't forget a good warm scarf. For California? For the flight. It's going to be cold a mile up in the air. A scarf, right. And the other thing? Orville, you are so willfully obtuse. On the way to Dayton, I ran through the clippings on Walter Lees that Marla had provided. Walter E. Lees gained an interest in airplanes at an exhibition in Chicago in 1911. A natural at the pursuit, he soon became a flight instructor as well as a part-time mechanic, and was soon even taking part in the design of experimental new models. Lees naturally did his part during the Great War, acting as a civilian instructor and test pilot for Uncle Sam. As in so many areas, with the 1920s came an inrush of technological innovation to aviation. Not only did this renaissance allow Walter Lees to pick and choose from among numerous attractive professional offers, it also allowed for ever greater possibilities in the brave new world of sport flying. By 1923, Lees took the Flying Club Trophy in an event that captured the minds of newsmen, sports reporters, and the public, the St. Louis International Air Show. 
Though, truth be told, that was a bit of a misnomer, as all competitors were Americans, supported by either military or private companies. Early this year, he survived a crash by a fraction of a second, totaling his plane, yet somehow escaping with only fractures in one leg and a bruised hip bone. By summertime, Walter Lees was nevertheless competing again, winning the National Cash Register Trophy, the most prestigious prize in an air meet in Dayton, his adopted hometown and would-be capital of American aviation. As for The Aeroplane in War by Claude Graham Wright and Harry Harper, although it is still a crude machine, in view of the perfected apparatus which is the aim of thoughtful designers, the aeroplane has demonstrated, in a conclusive way, its value as an instrument of war. In peace maneuvers in France and Germany, and under actual war conditions in Tripoli, scouting machines have proved their ability to pierce most effectually what is known as the fog of war. Peace maneuvers in France and Germany? When was this written? The next morning in Dayton, things went smoothly. A driver from the Dayton Wright Airplane Company, likely a pilot in training, I guessed, picked me up at the hotel at 6 a.m., and his Packard hummed like a contented lion cub all the way to the airfield. When I got my first glimpse of the airplane, though, I had to admit doubts were creeping in as the reality of this undertaking was dawning on me like the Ohio sun in the sky. Seriously? This thing was going to fly? Thousands of feet up in the air? Recalling what I'd learned in passing at Penn, I had to continually repeat to myself that the aerodynamism of the airplane is based on the wings, that the plane in the name referred to their shape, that with enough propelling force to lift off and maintain a goodly height, it is the plane of the wing that keeps one aloft. This wasn't really helping. Maybe I should have read more of that book. Everything all right back there? Uh... What's that? I said, uh... Well, all right then. The friend told me you'd be asking questions or whatnot, you know, like a interview. After all, we got a fair amount of time before landing. Right, right, okay. What can you tell me about this model of airplane? Great question. This is a modified standard J-1 single-engine craft contracted by the Standard Aircraft Company. After the war, the Army sold a few thousand of these on surplus to the commercial market. This particular model is outfitted with an experimental engine designed in-house at Dayton. Except for the shouting, Walter Lees at 5,000 feet was of identical temperament as he'd been at ground level, as much as anyone can make such a determination based on a persistent view of the back of a pilot's cap. Mr. Mulligan, I'm Walter Lees. Glad to make your acquaintance. Good to meet you. Much obliged for the, uh, ride. Well, I hope you're not just looking for a ride, Mr. Mulligan, because this is flying. I take it this is your first time? On an aircraft, yes. I have gone ballooning twice. Well, I think you'll find this sort of flying is a wholly different sort of venture. But you're certain to take to flight. After all, your name's Orville, right? Get it? Orville, right? Or Orville, right? Like your namesake? <laughs> Not quite a namesake. Just a coincidence. I was born three years before the Kitty Hawk flight. He's the boss here, you know. Great man. I'd introduce you and all, but he's not around. He rarely is, truth be told. But time's a-wasting, and it's a beautiful morning for flying. You're going to want one of these caps. Uh, here you are. Throw that on, and we'll get you into your rig. Rig? Your parachute. You strap it onto your back. Parachute? Are we going to need parachutes? Yeah, the company wants to save money. So instead of stopping to drop you off, we'll just drop you out over Dallas. Ah, I'm just pulling your leg. <laughs> Nowadays, I'd rather go the way of better safe than sorry. 
I don't know about needing a parachute, but I can say from experience that in an emergency, you're going to want one. Like I said, I had some doubts. With a wingspan of 44 feet 7 inches, length 26 feet 7 inches. Top speed officially of 92 and some miles per hour, but unofficially, I think I've beaten that. In competition? Nah, in 23 in St. Louis, they timed me at 89.31 miles per hour. That was quite an event. The St. Louis International Air Meet began on October 2nd, 1923. Among the pilots and mechanics, we decided that the International in the name was so chosen in relation to the technology and not the competitors. Our friend, Mr. Mulligan, would no doubt prefer to couch the event in terms of sport, and I can certainly do so. The 1923 St. Louis International Air Meet was hardly the first of its kind, but with some 20,000 spectators at any one time, and 100,000 said to have attended the competition at any point, the meet of 23 was quite probably the largest of its kind, and a far cry from aviation events of the sort I'd attended since 10. The 1923 meet in St. Louis showed the changing face of aviation in our United States. With sports headlining the attractions, the non-enthusiast might appreciate flying, what in my mind is set to become a foundational undertaking for our nation. The races of the St. Louis meet were individual contests of speed, but the public tended to think of the racers in terms of team as much as individual. I suppose this is natural enough as a solid two-thirds of the field were made up of pilots from the Army and Navy who flew uniformed. Their planes done up in the colors of the services. I had trained a few of these guys myself, in fact, but I'd be flying to better them, and I enjoyed the temporary camaraderie of my teammates piloting for any number of independent business interests who'd benefited from the aviation technology boom. Without fear of immodesty, I can say that the field in this competition was stiff. Everyone of any reputation in test flying was there. My confidence was unshaken, nevertheless. I myself represented Johnson Aeroplane Supply and Flying Service in the meet. Johnson supplied the plane, a Hartzell FC-1, an amazing machine whose body was made of nothing but plywood. She was as light as a feather, but as powerful as any single engine out there, thanks to the OX-5 engine and reliable Hartzell propeller. The lightness of the Hartzell could certainly cause it to be whipped about in the wind, but a steady hand on the throttle can give her just enough guidance. I competed for the Flying Cup Trophy in 23, the very first event at that meet with that sweet little FC-1. Now an aviation race can't possibly be run in the fashion of, say, a track and field competition. Rather, each pilot runs the course individually. Best time wins. Simple, right? Maybe in principle, but in real practice, too many of these fellas try too hard to impress, to push the machine to extremes, to either have too much confidence in themselves or not enough in the craft. Why? In the big Liberty Engine Builders Trophy event later that day, a young ensign, D.C. Allen, dumped his Curtis 18T in a field west of the course, and three others had to drop out without completing the race as well. All servicemen, each piloting a different model of craft. What does that tell you? On that day, in that race, in that FC-1, liftoff was picture perfect. Height is advantageous in flying competitions as it shortens the distance. In this way, my biplane had an advantage as its light weight made its ascent smooth and quick. Even better, in each of the four laps, I increased speed as the speedometer steadily slithered its way up past 85 to 90 miles per hour. We might have topped 90, that heart cell and I, had we flown one more lap. I brought her down, knowing that even with half the field yet to run, our times would be close to impossible to beat. Maybe halfway through that first flight, I fostered the thought that if I left my eyes open for much longer, my eyeballs might freeze over. 
On the other hand, I wasn't about to close them either. We'd flown past the cities of the Midwest now. Behind us, Indianapolis, Chicago, and Kansas City. Rolling beneath us was the prairie of western Missouri, maybe even Kansas. Where are we right now, Mr. Lees? 5,000 feet up, sitting in this airplane! <laughs> oh, I'm just joshing with you. We just passed across the Kansas state border, and in a few miles we can bank it south through Oklahoma. After that, it's Bob's your uncle. I'm guessing that's not aviation terminology. What's that? Nothing. Never mind. In your opinion, does competitive flying have a future as a sport? In my opinion, flying has a future in everything. Sports, warfare, especially commercial use. Just think about how celebrated the Pony Express was back in the day. Airmail would be far faster and cheaper with all the sense of adventure. And I also believe that soon, passenger flights will be commonplace. I was metaphorically warming a bit to the view of the unfurling flatlands below. I even saw a herd of wild mustangs in full gallop at one point. And I realized that the march of technological process is inexorable, but I cannot imagine enough people willing to deal with such a level of discomfort and collateral for relative speed of flying. All right, here's the spot, Mr. Mulligan. We're going to bank south-southwest here, then again straight south, all the way to Dallas and Love Field. There I was thinking I had gotten used to the sensations of air travel. Then we banked, and I knew that I was I slept the sleep of the dead that first night. Never had I felt so exhausted after a day devoid of physical activity. Mr. Lee's put me up in a bunk at the back of a hangar right there at Love Field. I hardly remembered peeling the rig off me, and I didn't even remove my shoes before reaching unconsciousness. Morning, Mr. Mulligan. Sleep well? Like never before. Yes, sir, that fresh, rich air up there will do that to you. But nothing like, what, uh, 14 hours of sleep to set you right, huh? Ready to put those new wings to work? Had breakfast yet? To be honest, no. I've hardly been up and about yet this morning. Well, here, have a sandwich. It's fried egg. Just do us a favor and don't paint the panhandle from up there. Paint the panhandle? Of Texas. With the contents of your stomach. Ah, I'm just jesting with you. <laughs> You gobble that down and we'll get you rigged up. Today we're going to be flying that baby right there, Curtis JN4D, also known as the Jenny. She's got a solid wood frame like the J5, but Jenny's made of sturdier stuff. Mm-hmm. Same engine, stronger, but slower, and so flies at lower altitudes. Jenny's a bit more maneuverable. She offers much better control. Here, I'll show you. Ready? I see. Oh, 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 Shame, too. Those were some good sandwiches. They were better the first time. Well, won't be too much longer before landing, and then we can fill you up again. <laughs> Fantastic. The first part, anyway. I was again completely spent from the flight, but managed to catch a taxi to a decent hotel. Walter met me over there later, told me he'd buy me dinner to make up for the one he'd, let's say, encouraged egress from my stomach. And I thought I was tearing up the skies in that hard cell, but when I ran up against some of the big boys in Dayton in 25, 
I figured the J-1's time is more than a novelty might be passing us by. You competed in the Dayton Air Meet just five months after your crash. Four and a half months. And I was back on the job with Johnson in a couple of days. And back in the air, two weeks after the accident. But you could have been killed. And to get back into a plane that soon afterward... Well, what else would I do? Ever since I went to that exhibition in 10, I've thought of next to nothing else in terms of making a living. From first sight of the Blarios and the new syndicate ASL, I have had nothing but the utmost admiration with these magnificent examples of human ingenuity and engineering. And how perfectly fine to be paid for doing that which you love. It's the American dream itself. As for almost being killed, oh, I wasn't in any serious danger. Or rather, I was, but all I needed to do was keep my wits and act precisely. On the morning of May 13th of this year, I decided to do a little maintenance flying on the old LVG they had at Johnson. The LVG was built by the Germans for use in the Great War, and Johnson had gotten it through surplus sale. Spoils of war, I guess. My compadres and I refurbished it rather nicely, up until the day I thought that Helga, that's what we called her, was actually improving with age. Or through our refinements, at least. To this day, I can't figure why I wanted to go right then and there. We hadn't made any serious improvements to her lately, and the dispatch sheet was empty. I also can't account for my wearing a parachute. In a dozen or so flights with Helga, I hadn't bothered. It's not like she was a long-distance or particularly high-flying plane, after all, but I did, anyway. Truth is, with most crashes, you can tell they're coming straight away. Maybe two seconds after taking off, it was obvious this plane was in trouble. Everything in the controls tightened, making the only reasonable maneuver even trickier to pull off. I'd have to turn a donut in hopes of making it back just a short distance and, and maybe land her in the field off the strip. I leaned into the yoke with every ounce of my strength, straining with every muscle to turn her around. I might have been halfway through the turn when I heard the engine fighting to stay running. Well, good evening, gentlemen. I take it y'all found our dining facilities to y'all's liking? Yes, sir. Our regards to Chef. But I'm wondering if you might help me out with something. My pleasure. We aim to please. Well, this is the first time I've been to El Paso, and... Is that so? Well, welcome to the city. Oh, thanks. Thanks. But I was wondering if you might be privy to certain information about it. Sure thing, mister. I was... Well, I mean... My friend and I were looking to perhaps get some drinks. Sure, plenty of refreshments in the restaurant y'all were just in right there. Well, not that kind of drinks. You know, like ginger ale? Well, I'm pretty sure we've got some ginger ale available. Unless Chet fell asleep before running the delivery over again. <laughs> Filling our place, I'm not sure what to recommend. There used to be a saloon right down the street there, but... See, that's the problem I'm having. I'd like to find that sort of old-fashioned drink of the sort you might have found before Mr. Volstead came along. Excuse me in advance for the possible casting of aspersions on your character, sir, but are you implying that I might know the whereabouts of illegal substance? Uh, maybe? Well, then I suggest you cease any such questioning. I run a good, law-abiding, God-fearing business here, sir, and I will not be a party to any violations of Constitution or Scripture. And, might I add, I will not be a party to any such related activity in this establishment. Now, will there be anything else, sir? Uh, no. No, that's all right. Then good evening, sir. Well, that's Texas for you. 
I swear, sometimes a day hasn't passed in this town since 1883. (laughs) Except now they don't even have whiskey. air meet began on the first day of October this year and drew crowds not quite as grand as in St. Louis the year before, but with an even more talented roster of pilots, and with a traditional format for racing. Dayton, in its bid to become a national capital of air racing and aviation in general, not only produced many of the top competitors in the field, but had gone so far as to construct a full-on airdrome outside the city. Once again, I was competing on the first day of competition, taking on other single engines for the National Cash Register Trophy. I'd souped up the old Hartzell FC1 a bit, but figured the other pilots' rides would benefit from a year and a half of technological advance. But nope. If anything, the competition had lost ground on the Johnson Company. The year previous, I'd topped out at over 89 miles per hour. And when Perry Hutton, with his own standard with a modified OX6, got in front at about 88 in the second lap, I figured I was done for. But my old girl wasn't ready to lose. By lap three, I got her up past 90 to 92 miles per hour, and Hutton looked to be close enough that I could reach out and yank him out of the lead. Flying around the pylon to start lap four, Hutton must have been best in 92, but I could see his ride laboring. I caught a good push and got her up to 95 and put myself neck and neck with Hutton, leaving the field far back enough to leave it a two-plane race for the finish. But Hutton couldn't hold the pace, dropping off steadily until the end of that final lap. I'd gotten 500 yards on him. Mr. Mulligan asked how I could have gotten into the pilot seat again. (laughs) He might well have asked Red Grange why he wouldn't consider leaving behind the sense of accomplishment gained by besting the best. out to the ball game. Can you do that? Sure thing, Mr. Camp. We're right on schedule for Fenway Park. Yes, sir. But no, no, this this is all wrong. Why are we going to Boston and... Marla Mulligan? Am I married? Sure you are. Don't you remember after the Pirates' Homestead Grays game? Uh, Mr. uh, Lees, don't you think you should pull up? Mr. Lees? Dudes, dudes, call me dudes. Dudes? So here's the lowdown. Until then. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Now that was discomforting. This is a modified Handley Page. It's British designed specifically for passenger travel even though today we're making an airmail run. The single wings and the biplanes are lots of fun for sport, but for any future beyond novelty, enclosed cabins are the only way to go. I'm just happy I have walls around me for once. Far more than the aircraft I'd experienced thus far, this handly page helped me to approach Mr. Lee's attitude and vision. In this plane, I could more readily imagine the opportunities for public use. Sure, something would have to be done to improve the still-constant, if muffled, barrage of noise coming from both within the craft and from without as wind rushed past at... How fast can this travel? I've heard tell of Handley's hitting nearly 130 miles per hour. But we've got a goodly amount of weight on board. Plus, I've been getting some resistance since leaving New Mexico. 
so we probably can't top 115 today. 115 miles per hour? And not even top speed? Incredible! Speed may be impressive, but distance is the critical factor. The aviation industry as a whole won't be more than a post and shipping workhorse until we can make these babies travel longer. The truth is that Mr. Ortag offered his $25,000 for a flight from New York to Paris, and most of us are still years away from that technology. Sure, the Army has been doing round-the-globe flights for a few years now, but they're taking four or five months at a time. Heck, you probably met swimmers who could circumnavigate quicker than that, huh? <laughs> I wasn't quite sold on Mr. Lee's futuristic thinking yet, but we were treated to hours worth of views. Views that 10 years ago were essentially literally impossible to enjoy like this. We flew over the vast red-brown deserts of eastern New Mexico, dotted with those famous mountaintop mesas, led to a greater expanse of the pleasantly golden-white sand hills of Arizona, which bled back into the colors of the Grand Canyon's desert, all of it majestic enough to inspire the traveler beyond the discomfort and the steady squall of noise. Or so I thought. What was that? Ah, just some more wind resistance. Maybe an updraft from Death Valley down there. It tends to happen. Oh, hell. Listen, I, I may need to change the angle of attack. I'm going to try and bring her a bit lower, but it could get choppy. Nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing like serious trouble. I leaned into the yoke with every ounce of my strength, straining with every muscle to turn her around. I might have been halfway through the turn when I heard the engine fighting to stay running. This was serious trouble. She was coming down hard, engine coughing its last, angled sharp to the ground. In short, out of control. In a fraction of a second, I knew I had to get out, but was too close to ground to jump. I slid up in the seat, pulled the ripcord on the chute, and sure enough, the velocity was enough to rip me right out of there, not more than 90 feet from where Helga ultimately went down. I knew pretty damn quick I'd made it out by a cat's whisker. As soon as I was free of the cockpit, I hit the ground. I stopped and was yanked back up a good six feet. I hit again and rolled until I stopped. Ended up with a couple of broken bones and an immediate hankering for brandy. <laughs> it also got me entry into the Caterpillar Club. I'm member number nine. And what is the Caterpillar Club? Well, two years ago, a couple of reporters from the Dayton Herald witnessed a friend of mine, Harry Harris. Or, more properly, Lieutenant Harold R. Harris having to bail out on a test run with a parachute. The plane was totaled, use of the parachute had demonstrably saved Harry's life, and the reporters hit upon the idea of forming an association of those who'd survived disaster solely by dint of a chute. Soon old Leslie Irvin, to that point, the leading manufacturer of parachutes in Canada, saw the opportunity for publicity in recognizing the Caterpillar Club, so-called as a reference to the threads comprising the material of parachutes. And where's yours? Ah, at home. I never wear it at work. Only special occasions like get-togethers with the quiet birds. And the quiet birds are... Sorry, my inquiring friend. Some things only the fraternal order of the skies may know. We're not called quiet birds for nothing, you know. Fair enough. Just as a fine film of sweat broke out over my entire body, my mind flooded me with sensations of the past, as though enveloping me in cushions for the imminent crushing blow. I was sent not so far past, but of just three days ago, back when I was nearly a whole country away. Good morning, Miss Delph. So it is. Just barely. I did catch the earliest possible train from Erie. Yes. And how was Christmas with the college chums? Or perhaps, should that be chumettes? Now, Marla, 
Why draw that conclusion? And what conclusion would you have me draw? You do have a reputation to uphold, after all. You could have spent Christmas with me. With us, I mean. I'm not sure I should ask this, but what are you saying, Marla? I'm just saying. Or I think I'm saying. Or, no, no. There's something I want to say, so I'm just going to say it. All right. Maybe we, I mean you and I, we should... Orville! Just the man I wanted to see. I got a belated Christmas present. See? No serious trouble at all. Well then, Mr. Mulligan, I suppose you'll be on your way. Enjoy the festivities. I understand they put on quite the fireworks display on New Year's Eve in Pasadena. And like they say, you can't beat the weather. I'll say. This is quite nice. Even better after a few days up in the air, huh? I cannot disagree with that. Thank you very much, Mr. Lees. This experience has left quite the impression. Happy to be impressive. Good luck to you, Mr. Mulligan. And come catch an air show next year. Should be a good one in Dayton. I may just do that, Mr. Lees. Walter is fine. We're fellow flyboys now, right? If you say so. Bon voyage, Walter. Hey, do you want me to have somebody drive you into town? Could be a ways. Uh, no, thanks. Walking's good. Am I headed the right way? You certainly are. The next several hours went by. Flew by, even, in a blur. I checked in at the hotel, incapable of impression. I changed clothes, dropped those that had flown with me over half the country at the laundry room, made my way to the hotel lounge, vaguely recalling that Max was out here for the game. My mind still seemed at sea, or more accurately, the sky. This wasn't due to a sense that I'd cheated death from thousands of feet up. The trauma, undoubtedly made worse by buzzing imagination, had evaporated, leaving behind the ethereal sense of flight and view making the world so small. It was about to get smaller. Well, what do you know? Max Mackey and Huey Wozniak. I'm surprised they let the likes of you two into this part of the country. Orville. Hey, what's up, pal? Don't tell me you guys are drinking actual ginger ale. Yeah. Is Sammy in town, too? He's around. He's around. Somewhere. Say, what gives with the glum air? Did Dukes go off to the only gin mill in Pasadena without you? Yeah, I had this crazy dream about him. Or at least he was in it. Dukes, uh... Dukes, Dukes... Yeah, Dukes. Seriously. What's going on here? It's Dukes, Orville. Dukes is dead. What? You have just listened to Orville Mulligan, sports writer, an audio drama podcast from Number 80 Productions and the Sports History Network. Episode script and story by Oz Davis and Darren Hayes. Orville Mulligan Sportswriter stars Doug Fye, Ilana Fye, and Eric Bodwell. This episode co-stars in order of appearance, Forrest Hartle and John Roberts. The theme song of Orville Mulligan Sportswriter is Dayton Triangle's Rag and was arranged and performed by Bruce Smith. Additional original music provided by Mike and Gene Monroe, Silverman Sound Studios, and David Lizzo of Dynamo Stairs. Please see this episode's liner notes for the full soundtrack listing. Orville Mulligan Sportswriter is produced by Darren Hayes and Oz Davis. Series concept by Darren Hayes. 
Keep your dial locked to this podcast station for the next exciting episode of Orville Mulligan Sports Writer, coming soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and PigskinDispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on SportsHistoryNetwork.com, PigskinDispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.